Well, good morning. It's so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park. Um, as you make your way back to your seat, if you have your Bibles, just go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, and let me pray for us and ask the Lord uh, to make himself known to us and to teach us uh, marvelous things as we look to his word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. I thank you for your mercy, for your grace. Lord, I thank you for the victory that you have won, that you have set us free from the bondages of sin. You have purchased us with your blood, and now we are your people. We belong to you. We are slaves to righteousness, Lord. And as we learn of all the wonderful things you've done for us, Lord, help us to become what we are. Help us to live in light of these gospel truths that we are going to declare to one another. And so, Lord, can you come and can you speak to us? Can you reveal truth to us? Um, Lord, you know us. You know what we're going through. You know um, our pain. You know our sufferings. You know our struggles. You know uh, the tribulations that we're going through, um, the things that we're wrestling with, the areas we're discouraged in, the areas that we're fearful about. Um, can you come in this moment and just speak to, to each and every one of us? Can you stir our hearts and our affections for you? Can you help us to realize what a wonderful God we have and a wonderful salvation that he has accomplished for us? And Lord, can we walk out of here saying, what a wonderful God, what a wonderful Savior. So please, Lord, come and speak to us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing our series through the book or the letter of 1 Corinthians. Um, and so in this letter, uh, Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. And really what he's trying to do is he's trying to persuade them and he's trying to reason with them as he's addressing 10 issues in the church. And basically almost every issue that he is addressing, he's kind of using the, this kind of the same message. The same message he's communicating, which is applicable to every message is like, look, people, the gospel requires God's holy people to mature in purity and unity. In other words, what Paul is constantly reminding them of is you must become what you are. If you are positionally holy before God, he has made you holy positionally before him, then you must become practically what you are positionally. And so this is my hope for us as we study this book of 1 Corinthians, that we would be reminded who we are in Christ and that we would become what we are. Now, in our passage today, um, Paul is addressing the fourth of ten major issues in this letter. He is addressing the issue of excusing sexual immorality. Now, some of you might be thinking, I thought we kind of talked about sexual immorality in chapter 5. And so what's the difference between what he addressed in chapter 5 and in chapter 6? Now, these were two different issues. The, the one in chapter 5, the issue he was, he, was he addressing was the one where the, the church kind of excused or kind of overlooked a man committing incest as if they, it was not their problem. We're not going to deal with it. And Paul's really addressing the church and like, um, yeah, you need to deal with it. And in chapter 6, that's a different issue where there's some men in the Corinthian church and they're kind of arguing and making excuses that having sexual relationships with a prostitute at an evening banquet is okay. Now we hear that kind of stuff and we're like thinking, What's wrong with that? 
Like, like everybody knows that this is wrong. Like, like having sex at a, with a prostitute at some evening luxurious banquet. Like everybody knows that's wrong. But yet we kind of have similar views in our culture today when it comes to sexual immorality. Like, like it's become acceptable in our culture today to have sex outside of marriage. It's actually encouraged, you know. Kind of take the, the car out for a ride. Test the compatibility in the chemistry. Another way is like you can have sex with the same gender. That's, that's acceptable. Actually, now it's almost something to be celebrated. And so we have very similarities in our culture. And so for us to look at the issue, we first of all have to look at it through their cultural lenses and then try to apply it to ourselves. And so we're thinking to ourselves, that's kind of weird that they thought it was acceptable to have sex with prostitutes at evening banquets. What in the world is going on? Now, as we look at the culture in Corinth, um, it was common to throw big, luxurious parties uh, with tons of food, tons of drink, and then if you have extra money, provide prostitutes for your guests. And that was a common practice for secular Corinthians. And so here you have these Christian men who, con- who are wealthy, who continue in the same lifestyle, and since this has been normal for them as kids growing up, It's normal for them as adults, and now it seems normal for them even as Christians. And what they're doing in self-justifying and why they think this behavior is normal, they're constantly using these arguments against Paul, saying, are we not free in Christ to do whatever we want to do it? Is sex not only just a physical thing? It really doesn't matter. It's just a physical activity. And since our bodies are decaying and our bodies are going to be done with anyway, like why does it really matter? And so what Paul is going to do is Paul is going to address, I call it the the three slogans. He's going to repeat these three slogans, and then he's going to address it by reminding them with gospel truths. Now, one of the things that as I was studying the passage was really significant to me that really kind of stood out to me was when we hear about somebody doing something um, that despicable, like having sex with prostitutes at evening parties and they're saying it's okay, our initial reaction is, no, it's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because the Bible says it's wrong. So stop doing it. And yet, Paul doesn't argue that way. Paul says it's wrong, but what he's doing throughout this passage, he's proclaiming the gospel to them, and then in light of the gospel of who they are in Christ and what Christ has accomplished for them, he gives them two commands. And so really what I want to do in this passage, um, we're going to deal with sexual morality a little bit, but really I want to show you the gospel truths in this passage and then start applying it to our lives, especially when it comes to sexual immorality. Because here's the reality with sexual immorality. People who are enslaved to sex, who who continue practicing a lifestyle of sexual immorality, it's more than just a physical thing. There's some deep-rooted darkness and lies that people have a tendency to believe. And so my job, what I'd really like to see happening is that as we proclaim the gospel to you through this passage, that it will start to address some of our insecurities some of the things that we find satisfaction and the desire to feel love and that we would see who we are in Christ. And again, the message that Paul is going to say is, become what you are. If this is what Christ has accomplished, then live like it. So that's basically our passage in a nutshell. Let's look at, the, let's look at our passage. This, I'm just going to read the entire passage since it's short, and then we'll just go through it verse by verse. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. It says, everything is permissible for me, 
but not everything is beneficial. Everything is for permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. I think what is helpful as we look through the passage is to kind of discern which are the words from uh, the men of Corinth who's trying to justify their actions and how Paul uses that slogan and proclaims the gospel truth. So that's what we're going to do. So here's the very first slogan. Uh, in, In verse 12, it says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. So so the first slogan that these men of Corinth are using is, everything is permissible for me. In other words, the Corinthian men are arguing, because we have freedom, we are free in Christ, we are permitted to do many things without any guilt or without any shame. And in a sense, they're correct, but they're wrong in how they're applying this principle. Because we are free in Christ, which is true, That does not give us the freedom to continue in sin. And so what Paul is doing, he's kind of taking that slogan and just gently refuting it. Because there is a sense where it is true, where Christians are permitted to do everything. For for, for example, it just depends on what we mean by everything. The slogan can be correct if everything refers to non-essential matters regarding the conscience. So for example, in Romans chapter 14, Paul talks about we can eat meat sacrificed to idols as long as it doesn't violate our conscience. We can drink whatever we, we want to drink. We can observe certain days as more holy than others. Why? Because we are free in Christ. But that everything does not include sexual immorality. And so what Paul is saying by taking that slogan, everything is permissible for me, he says, yeah, you might be free to do certain activities, but you need to remember not everything is beneficial. Not everything might be helpful for you. Plus, some of those activities is not helpful, but can also be enslaving. And so now he, in verse 13, he kind of drills down a little bit in what these Corinthians mean by everything is permissible for me as he addresses their second slogan um, in their position. Look at verse 13 here. It says, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, it's, it's very confusing because we're like, wait, I thought we we're talking about sexual immorality. Now he's talking about food. Like, like what in the world is going on? Um, 
what's really helpful for us to understand is this is the second slogan, but food is a euphemism for sex. So really a better reading of verse 13 and the slogan that this Corinthian men are using in a sense is this. Sex is meant for the body and the body is meant for sex. In other words, sex is just physical. God created us with, uh, to have sex. It's meant for the body. And then some scholars even believe, um, as we look at verse 13, uh, food is for the stomach and for the stomach for food. Um, Remember, in the original Greek manuscript, there's no punctuation. So they have to figure out, as they're translating from the Greek, they have to figure out like like where to put apostrophes, exclamations, where to put questions, where to to put uh, quotations. So whose words are who? And so, so some of them have a very hard time, especially in this passage, whose words are whose? And so for, for most translators, they agree that the words that food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, they're saying that's definitely from the Corinthians. And then there are some scholars that say, no, the, the, the apostrophe, shouldn't be ending after food or the quotation shouldn't be ending after food but rather the slogan should continue saying and God will do away with both of them in other words they're saying the whole slogan of the Corinthians is that sex is meant for the body and the body is meant for sex and God's going to get rid of them anyway and basically what they're arguing and what they're saying is sex is just a physical interaction It really does not matter because at the end of the day, what's going to happen to our sex? It's gone because what's going to happen to our bodies? It's going to be dead. God is going to go to be done with all of this. So what's the big deal of having sex with prostitutes? And what Paul is doing, he takes this slogan and then he replies He says, in in second part of verse 13, he says, no, however, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In other words, what he is saying is, hey guys, your physical body matters to God. Like this idea, and especially in Greek philosophy that I think has influenced us, The idea of our bodies does not matter. The idea of physical is inherently evil and spiritual is inherently good. And then when we all die, we're just going to be spiritual beings that's just going to float around in heaven. That's not Christian. Like your physical body matters. God created your physical body. You're like, Neil, why, why does our, our physical body matter? Well, here's the first reason. Look at verse 14. Here's why your physical body matters. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. In other words, the reason why your physical body is mattering, why? Because God is going to resurrect your physical body. It's not going to be a spiritual resurrection. It's going to be a physical resurrection. You're like, how do you know it's going to be a physical resurrection? Because isn't our bodies decaying? Like what happens to to those who are being cremated or just exploded in a nuclear holocaust? Like, well, what does that mean? Like, no, the Lord is going to raise you up physically. How do I know that? Because he raised Christ physically. Did his disciples not recognize him? Did his disciples not see his scars and his wounds? 
Like Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 calls Christ the first fruits of the resurrection. In other words, what he means by that is, you want to know what the resurrection looks like? The, the glorified body looks like? Look at Christ's body. He's still the same. He's still physical. He still had the scars and the wounds. Now, I know for many of you, you're disappointed because you're thinking, finally, ladies, in my glorified body, I'm gonna be a size zero. And in my, for the men, a glorified body, I'm gonna have 12 packs of abs and I'm gonna have these bulging biceps and finally legs and not these twigs. No, you're gonna look the same. But guess what? It's not gonna matter. Because when God created you, did he not say... It was very good. Your physical body matters because God will raise your physical body up. That's why your body matters. Second reason of why your body matters, look at verse 15. Don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? Like, not only does your physical body belong to the Lord and God will raise you up, resurrect your physical body, but he says that your physical body is united with Christ. The, the, the rest of verse 15 and verse 16 kind of have this, this, this weird union that's going on parallel between a husband and a wife. Like we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one in flesh. And so the union that you have with your spouse becoming one in flesh is the same union that you have with Christ. And in verse 17, he is saying, but anyone joined to him, the Lord is one spirit with them. In other words, he is talking about not only are we physically united with Christ, but we're also spiritually united with Christ. So this union with Christ is a physical union and a spiritual union. Now here's the gospel implication here. This is what Paul is arguing. Why is sexual immorality wrong? Because it's more than just physical, but your physical body matters. Why does your physical body matter? Because your body belongs to the Lord. He will raise it up and your physical body is united with Christ. And so if you're taking notes, here's this gospel implication that he's communi communicating to the church and to us. Don't participate in sexual immorality. Why? Because you belong to the Lord and you are united with Christ. We don't participate in sexual immorality because we belong to the Lord. We're united with Christ. And since you are in Christ, and since you're united with Christ, both physically and spiritually, then what does that mean for us? Start to live like it. Like if you are one body with Christ, if you are one spirit with Christ, if your body belongs to the Lord, start to live like it. See, here, here's the difference between, I'm going to go on a little rabbit trail here, then quickly get back on. Here's the difference between moralism and the gospel. 
when moralism addresses sexual immorality, what do you say? Don't do it. Why? Because the Bible says so. Don't do it. Why? Because you'll get an STD. Don't do it. Why? Because you'll feel shame afterwards. You'll feel bad about yourself. Don't do it. Why? Because you're letting everybody down around you. Don't do it. Why? Because of all the consequences that you're going to face. Yes, that's true. But I think the gospel gives such a better message. The gospel message is don't participate in sexual immorality. Not because of the consequences, not because of the STD, not because of the, the guilt and the shame. Don't do it because your body belongs to the Lord. He's going to raise it up and you're united with Christ. How can you be united with Christ and be united with a prostitute? You can't. It's two different directions. And so if you are genuinely in Christ and if you're genuinely united with Christ, both physically and spiritually, and you're one with him in the flesh and in the spirit, then start to live like that. Like, think about how wonderful that truth is. Because especially for us who are very insecure with our bodies, or we, we wish we had other type of bodies, and we don't want to take care of our body because it's just giving us issues, or we wish we were such and such and had their bodies. Think about this wonderful truth. Your body matters because God created it, and it belongs to Him and your body. You are united with Christ. You're one in the flesh with him. Isn't that a beautiful truth? Paul gives the first command. If it is true that our bodies belong to him and you're united with Christ. Look, look at verse 18, the first part of verse 18. Here's his very first command. Flee sexual immorality. In other words, since the body is meant for the Lord and not immoral sex, and the physical body matters to God, and the believer's body belongs to the Lord and is united with Christ, if that is true, then the believer must run and continue to run away from immoral sex. And then now Paul is going to continue. And it gives them more gospel reasons of why they should not participate in sexual immorality. Look at the second part of verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Now, again, we have to do a little digging here. The original Greek manuscript does not have the word other. So when you look at the second part of verse 18, where it says every other sin. That word other is not in the original Greek. So you're saying, okay, well, why did they add it? The reason why they added it was they were trying to make sense of this verse. So in other words, by them adding the word other, they're kind of implying that Paul creates two kinds of categories of sin. The non-sexual sin that is outside of the body and the sexual sin that is against the body, okay? So that's one option of interpreting the passage. That, in the, uh, that as we look at this verse, Paul is creating two categories. Non-sexual sin that's outside of the body. Sexual sin is against the body. However, uh, again, the original Greek did not have any punctuation, 
which means some translators do not add the word other, but rather add quotation marks saying, this was not Paul's word, but this was the Corinthian slogan. It was their words where they're claiming that every sin a person commits is outside the body. In other words, because of their Greek philosophy of the body and physical is inherently evil and spiritual is inherently good, they saw physical sin as not a bad thing and spiritual sin, sin that commit that you're committing against the spirit and the soul, that is a bad thing. That was their view of it. And I do think our best option here, and I give you full permission to disagree with me, and that's okay because I don't think it's going to impact the application to it. I think the best way to look at this passage is to see the words as the Corinthian slogan. The slogan that they're using, that, that um, every, every sin a person commits is outside the body. And here's why I, I say that. Because it kind of seems like for us to categorize sin into Two categories, sexual sin against the body, non-sexual sin outside of the body. That to me is confusing and unclear because sexual sin is not the only sin against the body. What about suicide? Gluttony? Drunkenness? Like, I just think it's very unclear and it it doesn't make any sense. And that's why I think by reading the text as these is the Corinthian slogan. The argument that Paul is making is, okay, you claim that all sins are outside the physical body and therefore sex with a prostitute is not really a sin. It's just a bodily act. But let me tell you what. Immoral sin is against your physical body. I think the reason why committing sin against your own physical body is such a bad thing Because your body does not belong to the Lord. Your body is united with Christ. And look at verse 19. This is why committing immoral sex is such a bad thing. Look at verse 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? So in other words... Another reason why sexual immorality is such a bad thing is your body belongs to the Lord. Not because only it's united with Christ, that's true, but your body is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. It is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, briefly, we're going to quickly talk about it. Because I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does it mean for your body to be a temple? And I think the best way to answer it is to kind of look at this, this idea temple, the theme of temple, which I think is throughout the scripture briefly, and see the significance of the temple and the big deal. So really, we're going to fly through scripture in five minutes. You guys ready? Okay. So the very first part of the, of the idea of temple that we get is in the Garden of Eden. Okay, let me, even though you don't read the word temple, here's the idea. When God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, the earth was his dwelling place. And before the fall, God regularly had fellowship with Adam and Eve in the garden. He communed with them. He walked with them. And after they committed a horrendous sin, what did God do? 
God kicked them out of the garden. He kicked them out of the garden, kicked them out of his presence. Why? Because God is a holy God. Now they are sinful and he provides two flaming uh, angels with flaming swords that guards the Garden of Eden. We're going to come back to that idea. And then we move on from the Garden of Eden to the tabernacle. Moses received instructions in Exodus by God to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a giant rectangular tent with two rooms. One room was the holy room and the other room was the most holy of rooms. And the most holy of rooms was protected with a veil. And in it was the the Ark of the Covenant that had two cherubims. It was the mercy seat. It was the place where God dwelt among his people. And the veil protected the people who are unholy from a holy God. And only the high priest once a year can enter into the most holy place after atoning for his own sins and then atoning for the sins of his people. And here's the interesting part. What do you think was on the curtain of the veil? It wasn't just a black veil, but they were cherubim skillfully woven into the veil. What was that Garden of Eden when they were kicked out to protect Adam and Eve? Cherubims with flaming swords. And then we go to Solomon's temple. Solomon builds the temple. It was in Jerusalem. It was magnificent. Uh, It was also a rectangle, but it was double in its dimensions. And, And Jerusalem was known as the city of God, the place where God dwells among his people. And then you see the entire life of Israel revolved around the temple. And during the exile, the temple was destroyed and the temple was rebuilt. And during Ezekiel's time, there's talks about a new temple, which really was symbolic of God's people, God's presence with his people for the future. And then you have Jesus in the temple and we see Jesus claims that his body is the temple. When he died on the cross, what happened to the veil? The veil split in two from top to bottom. And we learn that Jesus is the new and better temple. He is the once and for all sacrifice. He is the great high priest, which implies that all the temple rituals are obsolete. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled it. He is the new better temple. Another weird part in scripture we read about the temple, the church is what? The church is God's temple. And then we read in this passage, the individual, the believer who's in Christ is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then we fast forward to Revelation. And we read in Revelation 21, this new Jerusalem, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And in Revelation 21, verse 16, it describes the city as a perfect cube. And what else was a perfect cube? The tabernacle, the temple. And guess what was never described in the new city? A new heaven, new earth. No temple, why? Because the entire earth is the most holy of holies. It is where God dwells among his people. So based on that, looking at this temple theme throughout Scripture, the temple is where the holy God dwell among his people. The temple is a sacred place where God is dwelling and must be kept pure. 
So when Paul says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, he's implying that your body is where God is dwelling. It must be kept pure. It is a sacred place. And just like in the Old Testament, even though they did horrendous things, it was unthinkable for the priest to commit sexual immorality in the most holy of holies because it was a pure and sacred place. And Paul's argument is, if your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the place where the most holy of holies is dwelling inside of you, it is unthinkable to take that sacred place and defile it with impurity and with sexual immorality. So here's the gospel implications, if you're taking notes. Don't practice sexual immorality because your body is where the Holy Spirit is dwelling. It must be kept pure, for it is a sacred space. Your body, your physical body, it's the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is a sacred space that must be kept pure. And the point that he is making is, if that is true, if your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, if your body is a sacred space and must be kept pure, then start living like it. Become what you are. If you are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, then live like it. Sexual immorality is the opposite direction. It is not living like the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. It's not living like your body is a sacred, pure place. Become what you are. And then the third gospel implication, the reason why committing sin against your own physical body is such a bad thing, not only because your body belongs to the Lord and you are united with Christ and your body is where the Holy Spirit is dwelling, it must be kept pure for it is a sacred space. But look at verse 19, the second part of verse 19. You are not your own. Here's verse 20. Why are you not your own? What does verse 20 say? For you were bought at a price. Who did the purchasing? God did. Through what means? The blood of his son. You were bought. And so the gospel implication, if you're taking notes, is you to not, don't, don't practice sexual immorality. Your body is not your own. Why? Because you've been bought, you've been purchased with the blood of Jesus. Like he bought you, not only did he create you, he bought you. And it wasn't cheap. What did it cost? The blood of his one and only son. The blood of the king of kings. The one who created everything and who sustains everything. You were purchased by his blood. And then he gives another command. The first command was flee from sexual immorality. In other words, run from it and keep running from it. But here's the second command. Look at the second command at the end of verse 20. 
So glorify God with your body. What does it mean to glorify God with your body? Glorifying God with your body is a way of feeling, thinking, and acting that makes much of God. It shows that God is supreme and great and good. It demonstrates that God is wise and all-satisfying. And how do we glorify God with our bodies? Real simple. This is how you glorify God with your body. By using your body in the way God intended it for you to use it. Simple, right? How do you glorify God with your body? Use it in the way God intended it to be used. Such a simple thing, but what it really confronts in our sinfulness is when God gives us a good gift in our sinful nature, what do we do with that gift? We do not use that gift for what it was intended for. Why not? Because in our minds, we think we're God and we know better. And we know how to use it. And what is our 21st century slogan when it comes to our bodies? My body, my choice. Which means I can use my body in whichever way I feel fit, in whichever way I think it's intended for. And yet, Paul, in such a loving way, says, no, you can't. Why? Because it's not your body. It belongs to the Lord. And for the non-believer, it's not your body. It belongs to the Lord because the Lord created you. But for the believer, it goes deeper. No, it's not your body because not only did the Lord create you, but the Lord purchased you. He purchased you by His blood. And so the command for you is to glorify God with your body. In other words, use your body in the way God has intended for you to, for your body to be used. So, so what's the application here? Because I know for many of us, uh, well, I'm not going to say, may, yeah, many of us, not all of us, but many of us, we're like, yeah, I don't really struggle with the issue of having sex with prostitutes. So, like, this really is irrelevant. Like, like, like well, well, how is this going to help me in my life? Um, when you think about our culture's obsession with sex and sexual immorality, we, we, we look at our culture's sexual behavior and we say it's immoral. Really what's deep down in it is insecurity about our bodies, the desire of wanting to be loved and wanting to be accepted, of wanting to be satisfied and wanting to be fulfilled. And what sex does, which sex is a gift from the Lord, and interesting enough, Paul is actually going to address the next issue of sex inside marriage, that your body is not your own but now belongs to your spouse and how we should operate in this wonderful gift of sex that the Lord has given us. But what sex does is it temporarily satisfies, it temporarily makes us feel accepted and loved, it temporarily um, makes us maybe for a little bit feel better about ourselves. Or it kind of drives us deeper down in wanting more of it, of wanting more satisfaction, wanting more loved and more satisfied, wanting to feel better about our bodies. 
And here is where I think it's now applicable. What does God say about you and your body? Like, like, let's just be honest. None of us stand in front of the mirror and say, I look good. If you do, you're more than likely a narcissist or you're 21. But as you get older, like, like, like seriously, as you get older, like some of, I know some of you women are saying, man, it's so unfair for men. They just look more distinct the older they get. They get this patch of gray, and it's like it looks good on them. And women, we spend, you spend a fortune on fighting gray and gravity, GGs. Um, but like, like none of us look in the mirror and say, oh man, I look awesome. If you do, please tell me the secret, but you probably don't. But, but, but that, that's the reality. And we, we spend tons of money, tons of effort. We buy that dress, we buy that clothes, we buy that shoes. And then we think, this is going to make me look better. This is going to make me feel better. And does it? Yeah, for a little bit. How many pairs of shoes do you need? How many dresses do you need? How many different colors do you need? How many different makeup things do you need? Guys, how many shirts and pants and dress pants and suits do you need? And watches and gadgets. Like, like and what drives all of that is, is our insecurity of our own body. Like, like, sometimes we hate ourselves. We hate how we look. We think that God made a mistake that when God made me, he kind of made me ugly because the world tells me, this is what a good-looking person looks like. I want to be that guy. I want to be that girl. So I'm going to chase after these things, trying to be satisfied. And really what it constantly does, it constantly feeds our insecurities. And it takes us to dark places where we thought we would never go. Like men do despicable things just to feel loved and to be valued. The same with women. And what Paul is doing is he's not taking a baseball bat and saying, what's wrong with you guys? He's saying, hey, let me remind you of who you are. You feel ugly? Let me tell you, you belong to God. Not only because he made you, and when he made you, he made you really good, but he united you with his son. He purchased you with his blood. He put his spirit inside of you. That's how valuable you are to him. I just love within our passage, the Trinity. We see God who raises up the dead. We see the uniting with the Son and the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he is saying your body matters. So the next time, like when you look in the mirror, I know we don't always like what we see. The wrinkles are coming in. There's nothing you can do about it. But then you can remind yourself of this gospel truth. My body matters. Yes, my hips are hurting. Yes, my shoulders is not getting the, the rotation that I once had. And it feels like my body is decaying. But it matters to the Lord because it belongs to Him. It, he is so committed to your body that He's going to raise it up from the dead. And you're going to look the same. And you're finally going to realize how beautiful you are because God created you that way. He is so committed to your body that he actually takes your body and unites it with his son. He is so committed to your body that he places his spirit inside of you and calls you the dwelling place of God, a sacred and pure place. And here is the command. If all of that is true, 
then live like it and treat your body the precious way that God has intended it for you. Look at the world. We're chasing after stuff and things and looks and who knows what. And look how unsatisfied they are. And we're doing the exact same thing. Proclaim the gospel to yourself. You're beautiful. You belong to the Lord. He united you with his son. He bought you with a prize. He placed his spirit inside of you. That is who you are. That is what God says about you. Now live in light of that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our bodies. Lord, as I look around, it is so fascinating how we're all so unique. Facial features, DNA, personalities. And yet, Lord, you created us in our mother's womb. You knit us together. You put our noses and at mouths and ears and eyes and eyebrows and moles and skin tags and all of these things. You perfectly knitted it together as you created us. And yet, Lord, because of sin, it has impacted the way we view ourselves. We're pursuing after things that would satisfy and fulfill and make us feel better about ourselves, but we forget that our bodies do not belong to us. Lord, I pray for the men and for the women in this place and even for the the students who are just struggling with self-image and and loving themselves and, and figuring out who they are. Lord, can you help them to realize that they belong to you, that you created them, that you've united them with your son, that you've bought them with a price and you've placed your spirit inside of them, that they are pure and sacred temples of where you dwell. Lord, help us to live in light of that. So the days that we don't feel pretty or the days we kind of want to beat ourselves up and we say, who can love us? We can proclaim this glorious truth, God does. And we are his. And how do I know it? Because you've bought me with the precious blood of your son. You found me so valuable that you would buy me. Thank you for that. And may we never forget. May we become what we are in you.